Happy New Year 2021 and we start this year with a series of amazing conversations which I have lined up for you today on episode number 26. I'll be speaking with a friend of mine Dr. Nishi Bhopal on the dangers of sleeping medication. Nishi is a triple board certified clinical psychiatrist and she also specializes in sleep medicine and integrative holistic medicine. She graduated from the University College Cork School of Medicine, completed a psychiatric residency at Henry Ford Health System and a fellowship in sleep medicine at Harvard Medical School. She's also received training through the Maharishi Ayurveda Association of America and the Integrative Psychiatry Institute. Having grown up in an Indian family in Canada and living in several different countries, Nishi understands what it means to be multicultural and she is so attuned to the unique challenges faced by expats. She is also a meditator. She brings her experiences about yoga and meditation into clinical practice, blending the best of ancient wisdom and modern medicine. She is the founder of Intrabalance Integrative Psychiatry and Sleep in San Francisco. And she is just about to launch a sleep program which you can learn about at the very end of this episode. This is a very important conversation since there are so many people addicted to sleeping pills. So I urge you to tag somebody whom you know who is addicted to these pills. And take a listen to the show today. If you think that you like the show, please do leave us a rating and a review. And just to kick off the new year, I want to read out a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. Comes from LMA Listener, a must-listen-to show. I love the various topics that Deepa speaks on in regards to sleep. I recently discovered her show and I'm loving it. I recommend doing yourself a favor and going to listen. So enjoy my conversation with my sleep soul sister. Welcome to the Sleep Whisperer podcast. I'm your host Deepa. Join me and my many expert guests and medical professionals from the cutting edge science of functional medicine of the West and ancient wisdom of the East. Learn all about how to discover your root causes of poor sleep and understand the proper tools and techniques to end your confusion and begin getting a good night's sleep. It's time to regain hope and begin your sleep journey with the Sleep Whisperer Podcast. today and I'm especially um, excited about this conversation because I did want somebody who is a clinical psychiatrist to speak about this because it's a very concerning subject and we're talking about the dangers of sleep medication and weaning off of sleeping pills which is a alarming and concerning challenge all over the world and I think uh, we need to go into areas also looking at how do people actually start taking these are they prescribed are they prescribed short term how does it how does it end up so addictive so very important subject today and I'm excited that our listeners have the opportunity to have somebody from the medical community talking to them about this itself because that is a concern isn't it that there are the truth is that there are a lot of people in the medical community who actually do prescribe sleep medication and uh, which is why it's important that somebody with your um, professional expertise is the probably the perfect person to speak into this subject but before we go into that it's unusual to actually see somebody who's trained your triple both certified and you're a clinical psychiatrist and somebody who's trained in 
the traditional um, paradigm perhaps and then has focused on the importance of sleep so that's fascinating what made you fast uh, what made you go into this focus on sleep and also i do want you to tell us a little bit about how is a clinical psychiatrist different from a psychologist a counselor so there are very valid um, differentiations over there so just tell us your story how did you end up so passionate about sleep yes well first of all thank you deepa for having me on today and this is a as you said a very important topic weaning off sleep aids and something that i feel very passionate about so i'm excited to to kind of talk about that today so yeah, I mean, why did I become a psychiatrist? So I didn't intend to go into psychiatry when I went into medical school. I thought I was gonna become either a pediatrician or an internist. And I actually started out my medical training doing internal medicine. So I did my intern year in internal medicine and I found myself sitting and talking with all of my patients about what was going on in their lives? What stressors were happening in their lives? Did they enjoy their jobs? What was happening with their family dynamics? All the things that you don't usually have time to discuss in an internal medicine outpatient visit. And so, you know, I was going through my intern year and I realized, I think I chose the wrong specialty. So I ended up transferring into psychiatry after my first year of training. And so then I went on to complete my residency training in psychiatry. When I was in my residency training, I sort of stumbled across this field of sleep medicine. I didn't even know that that was a specialty at the time. And one of my senior residents from internal medicine actually was going on to go do a sleep medicine fellowship. And so that kind of opened me up to this possibility in this whole field. And so I started doing some rotations with the sleep medicine clinic at, at the hospital where I was doing my residency. And I just became so fascinated by it because at the same time, when I was in psychiatry, in my uh, psychiatry training, I was seeing so many patients with sleep issues, you know, like people with depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, most of them were complaining of issues with sleep and most of them were taking medications for sleep. And I wanted to learn other ways to support them with sleep because we know that when people are not sleeping well, it has a significant impact on their mental health. So that was one of the reasons that I went into sleep medicine to learn more tools to help my patients. So after my psychiatry residency training, I went on to go do another one-year fellowship in sleep medicine. So, and, your... um, so did you find that typically, do you also work with people? You mentioned bipolar, and I know that I personally know three or four friends who say they've been diagnosed with bipolar. And this is definitely concerning here that also I think sometimes diagnosis are made very quickly because uh, there is the fact that I've asked a lot of people, so were you looked at your labs before you were diagnosed with something like bipolar? Or was, did anyone take a look at what was going on other than say, no, that comes later. And honestly, to me, that was concerning because a lot of deficiencies can also play out in a similar manner as to several forms of mental illness and um, so do you still work with people who have bipolar who are diagnosed with bipolar and depression anxiety that's absolutely right so yes i do work with patients with bipolar disorder depression anxiety sleep disorders adhd and you know the traditional model is that these diagnoses are based on a clinical history I do work with patients who have bipolar disorder, anxiety, depression, ADHD, a number of different psychiatric disorders. And traditionally, the, the diagnosis is made on clinical history and interview. And oftentimes, labs are part of the initial um, diagnosis, the di initial diagnostic evaluation, but not always. And so actually, this is one of the reasons I got really interested in integrative medicine and integrative psychiatry. So while I was doing this psychiatry training and doing the sleep medicine training, I also started to explore yoga and meditation. That was more for my own personal growth and development. But while I was you know, having these experiences with, with yoga and finding it incredibly healing, I was also starting to learn about Ayurveda and all these other traditional systems of 
of healing. And it, I just got really curious about, well, what else is out there? What other tools are available to help our patients? And is this paradigm that we're working in in Western medicine really truly healing? And so as I continued with my training and I started working, I did additional training in integrative medicine and I did some basic training in Ayurveda and I also did a fellowship in integrative psychiatry. And so, you know, what integrative psychiatry is, is basically we're you know, trying to strip back all of these labels of depression and anxiety and bipolar disorder and really getting to the root and trying to understand what is the cause of these symptoms, right? Because these symptoms can be seen almost like the, uh, like a light going off in the dashboard of your car. So the light itself, it's not the problem. The light is a signal that there's something happening and you need to look under the hood. So we can think of anxiety and depression in that vein, that it's a signal that there might be something wrong and we need to look under the hood to see, is there some sort of endocrinological imbalance? Is it a thyroid issue? Is it a vitamin uh, issue? Is there trauma? Is there unresolved trauma that is manifesting now in these, in these other ways? So that's where integrative psychiatry and even functional medicine can be incredibly healing because we're not just medicating the symptom, but we're getting to the root cause. I think it's so important the work that you're doing, Nishi, and I just hope that it gets out to a much wider audience because this is something which is very, very important and I think sadly missing in India. Um, and I would actually love to see something like this come to help Indians because there is a large section of the population with several forms of mental health issues ranging from anxiety to depression and of course I think there's also a big part of that is uh, self-imposed restrictive diets and um, several forms of restriction in different ways be it the choice of the diet or also because sometimes nutrition is always about calories and restrictions and losing the weight and then in that process if you're going to rob your body of something like b12 and ion it can show up as some of these challenges that we just spoke about so that uh, I just want to appreciate the work that you're doing because it's critically important. So let's talk about how um, this, this whole aspect of sleeping pills, there is the fact that they are potentially addictive. Um, and we'll talk about that in much greater detail as we go along, because I personally know a lot of people who've been taking them for 10 years and who have a fear when you speak about even the thought of weaning that off because it does become something like their scaffolding so they started to believe that without that they just cannot fall asleep and they're going to have several ramifications on their day because of impacted sleep so and also i found in some of my research when we were when i was looking at this topic before talking to you that uh, some of these uh, sleeping medication actually they do have a tendency to even increase mortality rates which is very very alarming so let's talk about sleeping pills what exactly are they and um, you mentioned a few classes of um, uh, sleeping pills in the forms of benzodiazepine. So let's talk about some, let's break that down into detail. So when somebody's taking sleeping pills, what exactly are they? So most commonly people would be taking either a benzodiazepine or something called a Z drug or a Z drug. Uh, those are the most common classes of sleeping pills. There are other medications that are also sedating that may be used for sleep or to support sleep. But mostly when we're talking about sleep aids, we're talking about these benzodiazepines and these Z drugs. So benzodiazepines, also called benzos, these are drugs that work on the GABA system in the brain, G-A-B-A. -A. So GABA is a neurotransmitter in the brain that's considered an inhibitory neurotransmitter. So it quiets down the brain. So benzos work on this system in the brain. This is actually the same system that alcohol works on in the brain. So they actually work in a very similar way. And in fact, the side effects of benzos and alcohol are very similar for that reason. So benzos would include things like uh, Xanax, which is alprazolam, 
or Valium, which is diazepam, clonopin, clonazepam, so those types of drugs. They're also known as tranquilizers. And so these mm. drugs are used for anxiety, panic attacks. They're not only for sleep, right? So they're used for anxiety, panic attacks. They can be used for epilepsy and other conditions as well. So those are benzos. The other class that's commonly prescribed are the Z drugs. So Z drugs are similar to benzos, but they're a um, little bit more targeted to work specifically on the sleep system in the brain, but they also do work with GABA, that inhibitory neurotransmitter. So these ones are called Z drugs because they include Zolpidem, which is Ambien, uh, Zaloplon, which is Sonata, and Zopoclone, which is Lunesta. So those are the Z drugs. Both of these classes of, of drugs are meant to be used only for a short term. They're not meant to be used for more than two weeks because they do have a high potential for abuse and addiction and they have lots of side effects. But as you said, many people get put on these drugs and then they stay on them for years and years and years on end. And that can be extremely problematic. And Nishi, but you just mentioned that it's meant to be for two weeks or so, but. Uh, they do have potential of getting addictive. So is it that I know people who've taken it for three days and then on the fourth day, they say when they stop, they're not able to fall asleep. So does that actually affect natural sleep so quickly that somebody is unable to actually stay without it? Yes. Yeah, so this is a common side effect called rebound insomnia. So that's essentially once your body gets used to taking this drug, once you stop the drug, then you have a, a spike of insomnia. The insomnia can actually get worse when you go off the drug. And that is one of the reasons that people become dependent on these medications, because the moment you take the medication away, now you can't sleep and you're going through withdrawal. And so you feel like you need the medication to sleep. But what's actually happening is that you're using the medication to treat the symptoms of withdrawal that occur when you stop the medicine. Interesting. So it's a lot like you hear about re rebound reflux as well when somebody goes off antacid. So it's a lot like that. And you mentioned GABA. So I must add that also progesterone plays a big role in GABA. So if there are so many women who have uh, been diagnosed with something like um, anxiety disorder, depression, and then they actually having very, very low levels of progesterone, which I feel can be a major root cause of uh, their um, symptoms. And so their diagnosis might not actually be that at all. So when you work on the systems and the hormones, it might actually shift. So I would really love for people to start looking at a little deeper, at least trying to dig a little deeper and not just accept those diagnoses. So that was very interesting. Now, uh, let's talk about physiological effects of these drugs. So if, let's say somebody has started them short term and somehow they've ended up addicted to them. They're going on for a few months or longer. Uh, what are the side effects and are there physiological in, uh, effects of these drugs when they're used long term? So what actually, what, is, what does that look like in somebody's body? Yes. So I kind of think of side effects in different categories. So, you know, I think about the short term side effects. So short term. So, you know, like I was saying, it's not recommended to take these drugs for more than two weeks because we can see an increased risk of issues with concentration. So five times higher risk of memory and concentration problems, four times higher risk of daytime sleepiness and fatigue, two times higher risk of falls and fractures, especially of the hip and the wrist, kind of the, you know, those joints. And this is particularly um, problematic in the elderly, in, in older adults who are at risk of falling. And then twice as high of a risk of having a motor vehicle accident while driving. And these are just short-term risks of these drugs. So you can imagine if you're taking these drugs for years on end, the other issues that can occur. And so, you know, I will see patients in my practice who have been on these drugs for, you know, 10 years, five years, um, some people 15, 20 years, and they're tired all the time. Uh, they don't sleep well without the medication. They're having problems with productivity at work. They may even feel depressed or anxious. You know, there's, there's so many symptoms that can occur with long-term use of these medications. And the irony is that the symptoms that can occur are the very symptoms you were trying to treat in the first place with the medicine. 
There's a few other side effects that are also um, really interesting, and, and some of these are specific to the Z drugs, and this is the side effect of parasomnia. Um, so this has been shown a lot with the medication Ambien or uh, Zolpidem. So parasomnias are basically behaviors that occur during your sleep. These are complex behaviors that occur during sleep. So these include things like uh, sleep eating, sleep walking, sleep driving. There's been reports of sleep cooking. Um, there's been reports of people um, actually like falling out the window, uh, burning themselves, even shooting themselves or going outside in cold weather and getting hypothermia. So it's, it's actually quite a serious side effect. And there's been uh, 20 cases of deaths because of this complex uh, sleep-related behavior. So I've actually had patients who have developed these behaviors on, on these medications. I had one patient who would wake up in the, well, he'd sleepwalk, he wasn't awake. He would walk in the middle of the night and start eating candles. So just kind of chewing on candles and not realizing he's doing it and he'd wake up in the morning and there's like bits and pieces of candle everywhere. And of course he wouldn't feel well. So, you know, this is a, a very important and frightening side effect that can occur with these medications. And sometimes people don't even realize that it's happening. Another side effect. The inhibitory pathways is that why it, I mean, it, you lose all sense of conscious um, thought making process. Yes, and, and what can also happen is that we, you know, during REM sleep, so rapid eye movement sleep, where our body has been, is designed to be fully paralyzed during REM sleep. So that's a normal state to be in when you're in REM sleep, because we often dream during REM sleep. So if our body is not paralyzed during REM sleep, we'll be kicking and flailing and screaming and, you know, uh, acting out our dreams essentially. So it's normal to be paralyzed during REM sleep. So sometimes these medications can interfere with REM sleep and then result in us actually moving and then it can result in some of these other complex behaviors. Another side effect that, that's quite dangerous as well that, that people should know about is respiratory depression. So that's when these medications actually suppress the body's mechanism to breathe. So it can actually make us stop breathing. And this is really dangerous, especially if people are taking these drugs in combination with alcohol or if they're on pain medications like opiates, or if they have some underlying sleep condition that hasn't been diagnosed like sleep apnea, which is literally when you stop breathing during your sleep. So I'll see a lot of people who have undiagnosed sleep apnea, they don't sleep well, they come to me for help with, with sleep and they're taking these drugs and you know it's very concerning because they're already, they already have a condition where they're not sleep, uh, breathing well during their sleep and then they're taking a medication that inhibits their breathing. So this is a very important side effect that people should know of. Um, but Nishi, I just want to stop you for a second because I recently had somebody I spoke to about his sleep issues and he was trying very hard to settle it by himself. And he said, I just want to pay attention to my body. And then he messaged me that there was a friend of his who may, who just mocked him and said, why are you stressing yourself over this? I've been taking sleeping pills with a glass of wine every single night for the last 10 years and nothing's happened to me um i do want to i do want to talk to you a little bit about that because it does happen a lot and there is the belief that uh, it's so casual that it's perfectly fine hey don't make a big deal about this just take uh, take your sleeping pill have a glass of alcohol and you'll be fine let's talk a little bit about the dangers of that because you mentioned that uh, alcohol and sleeping pills. So can we just take a short segue into that about the potential dangers of combining these sleeping medication with alcohol? Yes. So, you know, so as I mentioned, the risk there is this respiratory depression. So when you're drinking alcohol, you're already, uh, you know, potentially suppressing the uh, sleep drive, the central drive to sleep, but you also may be affecting the um, airway. So what happens when you drink alcohol is that it's also going to relax the muscles in the neck and then relax the muscles in the airway and they're going to be more susceptible to collapse. So it's working in two ways, right? So it's telling your brain uh, not to breathe centrally and it's also creating a physical obstruction potentially. Then you add in a medication on top of that that also suppresses the, the drive to breathe. 
And so now you have two, you know, these, these two interactions that are quite dangerous. And, you know, I see this a lot too with younger folks. They'll say, oh, it's fine. You know, I can have a glass of wine. I feel fine and I'll take my Ambien and it's, it's no big deal. And I feel great the next morning, but it, it becomes dangerous over time. So it's not just in the moment. Uh, maybe it, it's, it was okay that one night, but the effects can be cumulative. So they can build up over time. And as we get older, our bodies become less resilient, right? And so the risks become even more significant as we age. So that's why it's really important from a very young age, you know, if you, even if you're, um, if you have a short-term bout of sleep and you're a young person, it's really important to understand the mechanics of sleep, how to engineer your sleep, uh, how it works, how to do it naturally, so that this will serve you long-term. So you're not gonna be dependent on these medications for the rest of your life. Mm. And also, I do want to ask you about, um, you said that it's prescribed short term, but sometimes people end up on it long term. Can you self-prescribe it? Are the class of drugs available without a prescription? So here in the US, it is uh, by prescription only. It has to be prescribed by a licensed physician or a licensed prescriber. Um, these drugs are the most commonly prescribed hypnotic agents worldwide, uh, Z drugs are. And in the US, this was a, a you know, $285 million business. This is big business here. Uh, so typically, yes, here in the US, they are prescribed by a healthcare practitioner. I know in some countries that you can get these from the pharmacy without a prescription, uh, which is quite dangerous as well, because uh, you know, these are not without significant risks, these medications. Um, uh, so in the U.S., if you say that they're only available on prescription, so how would somebody end up, if it's prescribed short term, how does it potentially become that they stay on it? Do um, actually, do they keep getting prescriptions to stay on this long term? What often happens is that someone will have a bout of insomnia and then they'll go see their doctor and then they'll be prescribed one of these medications and they work, right? So that's why they're so addictive because they work well. So the medication works and then they'll go back and they'll say, oh, you know, I'm feeling so much better. Can we just renew this for, you know, a little bit longer? Sometimes it's not even the patient asking for it. Sometimes the, the physician or the practitioner will extend the prescription. Um, many doctors here in the U.S. will prescribe them for 30 days at a time, not even two weeks at a time, and, and they'll put refills on them. So it's, it's not the fault of the patient that they end up taking these medications long term. It's just kind of built into the system, um, you know, and part of that is related to short um, visit times. A lot of doctors just don't have time the way that the healthcare system is set up to actually uh, disc a discussion with their patients about what's really going on, what are the root causes to do the investigation, to do all the workup that we were talking about. So it becomes this vicious cycle where now the person feels better, they stay on this medication, they try to get off it, and they have the rebound insomnia that we spoke about. Uh, so then they just end up continuing these medications, and that's how we end up seeing these patients on medications for decades sometimes. Um, and I, as I mentioned earlier, Nishi, there are so many people who've been on this for such a long time. So obviously they are getting this without any prescription in India because it is many, many of these are very easily available. Uh, mm -hmm. And I know somebody who's absolutely, she panics if anybody speaks about removing that or withdrawing that. So which is a big problem, as you said, they are potentially addictive. Let's talk about how, if somebody has actually been on these, any of these medication for a long time, how can they actually uh, attempt to let go of it? Because it can be scary. And um, is it a gentle process of weaning off? Do you first look at uh, building a scaffolding by looking at root causes and working on systems and restoring some sort of a balance overall before gently withdrawing? Is it cold turkey? So let's talk about that whole process of withdrawing these medications. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I can totally empathize with people who are on these medications and fearful of getting off because we all know, I mean, all of us have had bad nights of sleep here and there, 
right? Like we've all had that bad night of sleep where we felt horrible the next day, we felt exhausted, we felt foggy, we struggled to get through the day. So imagine feeling like that all the time. When you feel like that all the time, it can be so frightening to think about getting off of this medication that seems to be helping you. But you know, as we discussed, there are many, many long-term side effects of these medications. And they're actually not giving you the natural restorative sleep that uh, we should be getting naturally. Um, there are even studies that show that these medications can reduce slow wave sleep, which is the deep restorative stage of sleep uh, that's really important for brain health. So how do we get off of these medications? The first thing is mindset. So I always talk to my patients about, well, why do we want to get off the medication? Let's find your reason why. You have to have that internal motivation to do it. It can't just be someone telling you, you have to get off the medication because you're not going to do it, right? You're not going to be motivated to do it. So if you yourself have a reason to get off, maybe it's, um, you know, I'm, I have rebound insomnia when I try to get off and I don't want to experience that anymore. Maybe it's making me groggy during the day or I'm not as productive as I could be or I, or I feel foggy or um, I just don't want to take pills anymore, right? So you need to identify what your internal motivation is. So why you want to get off it. The next thing is to figure out the root cause. And, uh, you know, we can maybe jump into root causes a little bit later, but, um, you know, really identifying is there an underlying medical issue? Is there, um, a, you know, issue with anxiety or depression or something like that that needs to be addressed? Um, is there sleep apnea? Uh, so we can, we can look at those things in more detail, but um, you want to identify what the root cause is. So for many of my patients, We'll start by actually addressing the root cause. So I'll keep them on their sleeping pill. Then we start working on the underlying root cause. And then slowly, once we have a better handle on that, then slowly we can start to wean. You never want to stop these medications cold turkey. That can be dangerous. Stopping benzos or sometimes even stopping these Z drugs cold turkey can result in seizures. So it can be quite dangerous. So you always wanna do it very, very slowly. The other thing that can happen is you can get that rebound insomnia. So that's gonna make you just wanna go back on the medication and then you're gonna give up and say, forget it, I'll just stay on this, right? So you wanna make sure you do it the right way. And the way that I usually taper people is very, very slow. And the longer the person has been on the medication, the slower I go with the taper. So what this could look like is um, if they're on a full tablet, let's say every, every night, We'll cut it down to a half tablet, one night a week. So six nights on a full tablet and one night on a half tablet. And then leave it at that. And then they'll get a little bit of confidence. They'll say, oh, actually, that, that was OK. So next week or in two weeks, we'll do two nights on a half tablet and five nights on the full tablet. And we'll do that for a couple of weeks. And OK, that was OK. And we keep building from there. So I've had patients where they've been on these medications for years. And we could take a year or longer sometimes to taper off. Interesting and a very sensitive approach as well. That's, I mean, I haven't actually heard about something like this, which can really be very reassuring to the patient as well. And that's so important because as you mentioned, uh, it is scary and there are a lot of people for whom they just cannot afford to lie in bed all day after a night of bad sleep they have to still pull themselves up and go to work and it is a question of livelihood or more and uh, that's a beautiful approach so have you actually found that there are a lot of people on medication whom you've had to wean off or do people also come to you who are not on medication and who are just struggling? So is there, what I'm asking is, is there now more awareness that people are starting to go to a sleep expert before they get onto medication? Yeah, so I see a mix of both in my practice. So I do see a fair number of people who come to me for help getting off of these medications and they're very motivated to do that. So I actually spend um, a good deal of my practice working with, with folks who wanna get off these meds. Um, but I also get the other people who have sleep issues and they just want the pill to feel better. And so, it, you know, I'm not opposed to using these medications. I see them as a tool. Right? So these, these medications are a tool that you can use appropriately. It's when we use them inappropriately that they become problematic. 
So we can use it for short-term support. So I might have patients going through, you know, a, a difficult time in their life or, you know, they're traveling. Well, now not so much with COVID, but, you know, they're traveling. They just, they just need something to take when they're traveling across time zones or, or they, you know, um, they're going through a divorce or something like that. And they just need a little bit of support. And so these medications can be quite helpful in those situations used at the lowest doses possible for the shortest period of time possible. So I'm not anti-sleeping medication. It's just that they need to be used in the right way. Makes sense. And uh, you mentioned root causes and we're going to, I just want us to go a little deeper into that. So when you do have somebody who's been on medication for a while and you, they want to come off the medication and you're starting to dig a little deeper at root causes before actually beginning that process of weaning off the medication, what are those potential root causes that you come across? So I think of root causes in four broad categories. The first thing I look at is food. What are you eating? When are you eating? How are you eating it? So we'll go through their whole diet and um, see is, are there issues with acid reflux that could be waking them up at night? Are there issues with um, you know B12 deficiencies like we spoke about? Is there anemia or some sort of iron deficiency? So we'll look at food and we'll look at nutritional status. So that's the first thing. Um, we also look so at let's, substance. Uh, no, let's go a little bit into the diet. So when you said, let's, uh, I look at their diet. So what does it look like when somebody's having, um, where you feel that the diet is actually uh, perhaps a root cause of their poor sleep? What does that diet look like? Oftentimes, so I focus a lot on circadian rhythm. So oftentimes what I find is people are eating at the wrong time. So it may not even necessarily be the wrong kind of food or something that's food restrictive. They're eating at the wrong time. So I really like to look at the circadian rhythm. Oftentimes we'll find that people are eating way too late. They're eating too heavy of a meal too late at night, or they fasted for too long. Um, many people are into intermittent fasting these days, but um, they're not doing it in a way that is you know, uh, aligned with their own natural body rhythms. Um, so that can sometimes be problematic. And, you know, as I mentioned, sometimes patients are not eating enough uh, protein um, or they're not getting enough iron in the diet um, or they're eating too much sugary stuff or they're drinking too much alcohol. So sometimes it's just very simple, right? Sometimes it's not even a complicated, you know, nutritional thing that we need to work up extensively. Sometimes it's just very basic uh, modifications that we can make. So the next thing I look at is the environment. So what is, what is your uh, bedroom like? What's the sleeping setup? And this sounds so basic, but it's so, so important. And I'll give you an example of one of my patients. So I had a patient come to me who had been having trouble with sleep for years and years, like over 10 years. And she'd seen different specialists. She was taking medication, but she didn't want to be on medication. So we go back to basics. We talk about, okay, what's your food like? What's your diet like? What's your routine? Then I always ask, okay, tell me about your bedroom. What's your bedroom set up? And so we're in San Francisco and we have very small spaces here. And she was, is living in a studio apartment, which is just basically one room, right? So there's no separate bedroom. It's just one open room. And she put her bed in the closet because there was no other room. And she, cause she wanted a separate area to sleep. So she put her bed in this tiny little closet with no windows, no ventilation. Um, it was stuffy and she shut the door. And claustrophobic. Claustrophobic, but she couldn't breathe was the thing. There was no air in there. She couldn't breathe properly and, and it was hot. So it was hot and it was stuffy. So I said, okay, let's take your bed out of the closet and move it to the other side of your room. And she put it next to the window uh, in the studio apartment and she put up a small room divider to create a separate space and literally overnight her sleep improved such a simple change because she could breathe yeah, yeah. so yeah. such simple things uh can actually have a profound impact so environment so we look at the, these things what's the ventilation like in your room is your room dark are you waking up because of um, ambient light 
What about noise? Is there a lot of noise outside or is there noise in your house? Is your dog barking at night? Is your dog in the bed uh, disturbing your sleep? So simple things like this. Even temperature is very important, right? So when we go to sleep, our core body temperature drops. So you wanna make sure the ambient temperature in your room is on the cooler side and that even your, the sheets that you're using are not gonna make you too hot, which is then gonna disrupt your sleep. So I recommend to all my patients who are hot sleepers to right. use breathable um, uh, organic cotton sheets or at least some sort of natural fiber sheet that's not synthetic. And that's actually gonna keep them cool and help them sleep better. Um, so those are the environmental factors that I like to look at. The next category that I look at is mind. So these are things like anxiety, depression, as we discussed, bipolar disorder, stress, even your mindset about sleep. So, you know, oftentimes people who have long-term sleep issues develop this mindset that, uh, you know, they become afraid of sleep. They become anxious about it. Yeah. Or, yeah. Um, you know, the idea of going to bed is, is just so anxiety provoking and they get into this hyper aroused state, right? And this is also one of the reasons that medications are not effective long-term because they're sedating your brain, but they're not actually getting to the root cause and they're not helping you with that hyper aroused state. So oftentimes people are, are taking medication because they're in the state of hyper arousal. So they're trying to medicate the hyper arousal away with this sedative. So mindset is very important, basically removing that fear about sleep. So addressing cognitive distortions about sleep. Um, is yeah, a big how do you do that, Nishi? Do you tell them to include something which is targeted? Like I know you're passionate about yoga. So do you bring in some breath work, mindfulness, meditation, something like that? Yes, yes, absolutely. So what happens is when we're in this hyperaroused state, we are in our sympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system is the fight, flight, or freeze aspect of our nervous system. The other part of our nervous system is parasympathetic, which is rest and digest. So what we want to do is we want to shift over from that, para, uh, from that sympathetic state into our parasympathetic nervous system. So doing exercises like um, breathing techniques or yoga practices, or even Tai Chi or whatever type of practice the person likes to do. So it's not, I don't give everybody the same yoga practice to do because not everyone wants to do yoga, right? Not everyone wants to meditate. Um, yes. So, you know, I really tailor it to what that person enjoys and what feels grounding and relaxing for them. But the idea is we're trying to calm down that sympathetic nervous system, calm that hyperarousal response and activate the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. Great. So what's the final root cause that you look at? Yes. So the fourth one is medical. So this is a big one, right? So we want to make sure there's no sleep apnea, which I've spoken about a lot. So sleep apnea, I'll just briefly share the symptoms. Um, so snoring is a big symptom. Waking up gasping, waking up with a choking sensation, waking up with a dry mouth or a sore throat or a headache um, are symptoms or feeling really sleepy during the day, having trouble staying awake during the day. Uh, in conjunction with these other symptoms can be signs of sleep apnea. So sleep apnea is essentially when people are not uh, breathing properly during their sleep. So you, you stop breathing during your sleep. So that's a very important cause that I screen everybody for. And I've picked up a lot of sleep apnea in people that you wouldn't think would have it. Because we often think about sleep apnea as happening in middle-aged men who are maybe a little bit overweight, who have a thick neck, right? That's the kind of the classic image of the person with sleep apnea. But I picked up a lot of sleep apnea in younger women or thinner people because um, people who are thinner or more petite also have a narrower airway um, that's more prone to collapse. So, uh, so it's always important to assess for that. And it can happen in kids as well. So, uh, you know, if a child has sleep issues, it's important to assess for sleep apnea. And I think that could potentially be a reason for why they show up as symptoms of ADHD as well, because yes. they're not breathing optimally in the night or during the day. So that can be, I mean, ADHD is growing so rapidly. 
Um, so, I mean, I think these are, so do you just screen everybody who comes to you for sleep apnea? Yes, so that so one of my um, uh, basic screening is is to ask them about symptoms of sleep apnea, and it just takes a couple of seconds. You know, do you snore? Do you wake up? You know, do you have all of these symptoms? So it's it's a quick check, but um, you know, I'm sometimes surprised at uh, who actually has it. So if they say yes to those symptoms and the screening, then we'll look at doing a sleep study to evaluate it further and to confirm the diagnosis. Um, so that's usually how that process goes. Um, other medical issues that are really important to score are circadian rhythm disorders. So this one I see a lot, right? So our circadian rhythm is our body clock. So our body clock is on a rhythm and we all have different rhythms. Some of us are more night people. So we you know, have trouble falling asleep. We stay up later, but we like to sleep in. Others are morning people. So they fall asleep earlier and they wake up earlier. Um, and it it's not a problem to have a body clock that's on a different rhythm, but it only becomes problematic because most of us are on a very set schedule. We're all trying to fit into this nine to five schedule. And um, that is not a one size fits all thing, the body clock. So I see a lot of people who actually have a circadian rhythm disorder that they're medi being medicated for. Uh, you know, so they, they say, oh, I have insomnia, but actually it's that they can't fall asleep because their melatonin secretion is delayed because that's their, their natural circadian rhythm. And, you know, I've seen, um, this happens a lot in teenagers. So about 16% of adolescents have delayed sleep phase syndrome, which is a delayed body clock. So in the sleep clinic, I've seen kids being put on these drugs, being put on Ambien or um, other sleeping pills. Uh, when they actually had a circadian rhythm disorder. So they were diagnosed with, with insomnia, um, but it was a body clock issue. So I was able to help them regulate the body clock and then get them off the sleeping pill. Um, so this is a very important- um, How do you actually I, help them? And you said help them regulate the body clock. How do you actually do that? Yeah, so, so this is actually one of my favorite things to help patients with. So I see a lot of patients who come in with, with these circadian issues. And essentially what we're trying to do is align the body clock with the natural light and dark cycle. And it's so fascinating to me because Ayurveda knew this 5,000 years ago um, and Western modern science is sort of catching up to it. And it's very aligned with the Ayurvedic understanding of, of circadian rhythm. Uh, but what I do essentially is um, I use light so I'll use a light box or some sort of light therapy uh, or a dawn simulator. And then we use very low dose melatonin for a, a short period of time, usually a period of a few weeks in a strategic way. So I'll give patients a um, prescription essentially of when to use their melatonin and when to use their light. And we shift the timing to pull their sleep earlier. Mm. And that's usually about an eight week process. Mm. Very interesting, Nishi. I think uh, I'm, I'm not going to let you go quite so quickly today. So we're going to talk a little bit more. So are we, have you told us all about your root causes? Is there something more? I mean, we were talking about medical causes. I'm sure there are something to do with vitamins or uh, as you mentioned earlier, thyroid. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yes, so medical causes also include um, thyroid issues. We, uh, you know, also for neurological issues. So sometimes, you know, there are certain types of epilepsy that could show up uh, as a sleep disorder. Um, or, uh, you know, restless leg syndrome, which is often related to low iron or low ferritin levels. So, these, you know, getting back to the nutritional things. So really assessing for um, all of these underlying medical issues, as well as medications. Sometimes the medications that people are taking can cause sleep issues. And we see this a lot with people who are maybe um, taking stimulants or certain types of blood pressure medication that can cause sleep problems. So it's, it's really, you know, we really have to zoom out and take a holistic view of, of um, everything from A to Z, you know, what's happening from, from head to toe, um, medically, psychologically, and then in the environment. Can we speak a little bit about iron? You did mention restless legs and low ferritin, and this is a very big challenge. I see a lot of people with very poor levels of ferritin. And um, is do, what do you actually do if you find something like that? 
Yeah, so restless leg is one of those diagnoses that people don't think is real. <laughs> you know, so I'll often ask patients about those symptoms. They'll go, what? <laughs> yeah. That's a real thing. But it is, it's, it's a real condition and it can actually be quite debilitating for people. Yeah. Um, and it, it usually has a circadian component. So the symptoms are usually, um, uh, you know, difficulty, uh, you know, getting comfortable. They'll have a sensation of creepy crawlies. They'll have a sensation that they need to move. Yeah. Um, or wiggle their toes or walk around and it prevents people from falling asleep. And restless leg syndrome is a disorder that happens during wakefulness. So it doesn't happen during sleep itself. It happens when people are trying to go to sleep yeah. and it usually happens in the evening. So there's that circadian component. So one of the most common causes of restless leg syndrome is low ferritin. So I always screen for this condition as well and just ask those basic questions. And part of my standard lab workup that I do with patients includes ferritin and iron levels. And, you know, the ferritin, the normal range of ferritin is quite wide. So here in the U.S., usually the labs will say somewhere between 12 and 200 is, is normal for ferritin. So I'll have a patient come back and have a ferritin level of 15, and they're like, oh, okay, it's in the normal range. It's fine. But actually, for restless leg syndrome, we want it to, that level to be at least 50, um, ideally even at least 75. Uh, so we're looking for a... Um, uh, you know, a much higher level than it's considered normal. So what do you actually do? Because I think a lot of times diet itself can be the reason for low ferritin. So do you notice some difference here between a plant-based diet or a, does that contribute to low ferritin levels? Or if somebody were on um, a diet which didn't have adequate iron, what would you typically do in that case? In these cases, I usually do supplement with iron. So sometimes we'll have patients increase more iron-rich foods, but you know it can be difficult with people who are very strict vegans or um, vegetarian. So I typically do recommend iron supplementation at least for a few months time, and then we recheck their levels. Sometimes I will send patients to a um, naturopath or a um, uh, like a nutritionist for more guidance on diet because I'm I'm not a, a specialist in diet. So if we need more support with that, sometimes I will refer them out. Right. Uh, but do you feel there is a um, slight concern with somebody who might be on a plant-based diet with in terms of ferritin levels? Yes, yes. And so I'm always concerned about ferritin levels and also B12 levels. Yes. In, in those patients. Yes. Yes. Which is a big concern um, in a lot of people because they are shifting for the sake of ideology. And sometimes it's also that there are there is a component of peer pressure with this because there are a lot of people who are uh, moving towards the choice of that diet because somebody in the family is that way and they don't want to be a different way which can be very sensitive as well but I think it is important that they do consider iron and b12 as a point of concern if they've chosen to be on that diet for whatever reason uh, so I think it's I'm so glad you spoke about that so let's talk about I know um, we are almost out of time, so I want to wrap up with some um, profound takeaways from you. But let's talk about supplements. And um, if somebody were on sleeping medication, you're weaning them off. So let's talk about how the role of supplements in that situation. Yes. So supplements need to be used carefully because what can sometimes happen, and I've seen this, is you know people will have this psychological dependence on their medication that now gets shifted to a psychological dependence on their supplement. Yes. So we always have to be really careful about that mindset piece and understanding that, look, the supplement is there to support us in this process of restoring your sleep. It's not a replacement for your medication and it's not the only thing that's going to help you. So I always you know try to frame it that way with people so they're not just you know now dependent on the on the yes. supplement. And I've seen this with patients where they'll say, oh, I didn't take my, you know, valerian. I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight. And we're getting, we're getting to that same pattern that they were in with the hyperarousal response and the dependence on the medication. But having said that, I do use supplements uh, to support the process in restoring sleep. I mentioned melatonin. 
Uh, melatonin is one that um, I do use, particularly if people have a circadian or body clock issue. Um, and we use this to kind of restore their natural sleep rhythm and pattern. Melatonin, if you go to the drugstore, at least here in the US, usually you'll find doses of three, five, or 10 milligrams, sometimes even 20 milligrams, which are way too high for most people. Yes. And so we need to be careful with dosing of supplements as well, even though they're natural and they're over the counter, they're not without risk. So with melatonin, I usually use half a milligram, usually no more than one milligram, um, timed a couple of hours before bedtime, uh, depending on what the person's natural rhythm is. So, you know, we'll figure out the right, the right strategy and the right timing and adjust that um, as, you know, as we work on the sleep. Um, and I usually don't use it for more than about eight weeks. And the reason for this is that we don't have a lot of data on the long-term use of melatonin. Um, and so when we don't have a lot of data on things, I, I you know, usually don't um, you know, uh, recommend using it for longer, but also I do see side effects with melatonin as well. So I'll what see- What are the side effects that you see, Nishi? Let's talk about that. Yes. So one of the most common side effects I see with melatonin is vivid dreams. Mm. Um, and oftentimes people don't realize that there's that correlation. So I'll have patients come back to me and report, oh, I had these crazy dreams. And I said, well, did you take melatonin that night? Oh yeah, I did. <laughs> so vivid dreams um, is a very common side effect. Depression is another side effect, especially with long-term use. So I've seen patients who have been taking melatonin for years and they also have this chronic depression. And when we start weaning them off, so I wean them off just like I wean them off medication, we see that the mood starts to lift. We also see chronic fatigue and grogginess with long-term use of melatonin. Um, and daytime sedation and sleepiness. So, you know, again, it's, it's a natural thing. It's, it's something our, our body produces, our brain, the pineal gland in the brain produces melatonin um, to promote sleep and, and to regulate our sleep-wake cycles. But just because it's natural doesn't mean that it doesn't have side effects. So those are all the main side effects that I um, usually assess for. And you had mentioned half to one milligram because I was so fascinated that a lot of people are actually self-prescribing six milligrams and um, they're been on it and they say it's perfectly fine to take this long term. So, so um, what? So is it that the higher the dose, these side effects get magnified or potentially could? Yes, so the higher doses can cause more side effects. And oftentimes people take higher doses because they find it more sedating. So I think of higher doses as a pharmacologic dose, like a drug dose versus a lower dose is like a physiologic dose. So it's more like mimicking your natural physiology. And you know, melatonin, again, I, I don't use it as a sedative. So I'm not giving it to patients or prescribing it to patients to put them to sleep. We're using it as a body clock regulator. So again, it's one of those tools, right? So it needs to be used appropriately. It's when it's used inappropriately that it can become problematic. And I think it's also because you uh, you look at the holistic approach. So you're not looking at melatonin as a fix it. You're looking at it as a complementary and adjunct, a petal with so many other tools that you use. And that's, I think, the different approach that you bring into your practice. Uh, so Nishi, I know we are definitely out of time, but any last words, um, any takeaways, just uh, words of um, sleep hope to our listeners? Yes. So, okay. So remember, there is no one quick fix. It takes multiple small, small changes over time. So lots of little tweaks over time doing it slowly, changing your mindset, and it works. This approach works, the holistic approach. So making small changes with the medication, doing it under the supervision of a doctor or a sleep specialist who understands sleep is really important. Uh, you, need to, you need to talk to somebody who knows what they're doing. Um, and then changing your mindset is really the most important thing. Um, reducing that anxiety about sleep and understanding that sleep is a passive process. The more that we try to sleep, the more we make it in, into an active process and the more elusive it becomes. So we almost have to relax into it. That's why we say we fall asleep, right? It's a passive process that we fall into. Uh, so that is something that you know everyone should remember that you can do it, 
but do it slowly, making multiple changes over an extended period of time. Beautiful, Nishi. I think I could speak to you for another one hour, but I'm going to let you go today and maybe we'll come back to an episode with something else. But this was great, wonderful takeaways and lots of profound information to our listeners. Before I let you go, just complete our sleep whisperer mantra. If sleep is the new medicine, then how would you complete it? Your spin on it. If sleep is the new medicine, then everyone can enjoy optimal health. So Nishi, thank you for being here today on the Sleep Whisperer podcast. It was an absolute pleasure. And I'm so grateful to you for taking the time out to be here, especially because this is a very concerning topic. But I think you've also given a lot of people who perhaps are on medication that hope that it is possible to reverse that and get wean off the medication. But I think my biggest takeaway from this is what you said at the end, that if you are on medication, be sure that you have the right person who's able to supervise this process. So I think it's important to differentiate between a sleep expert who's... Um, probably not within the scope to be working with medication and weaning off. So they do need to approach somebody like you who is a psych clinical psychiatrist or an integrative psychiatrist and work uh, on doing that. And I think that's a better approach than trying to do that for themselves with experimentation over supplements willy-nilly. And um, so Thank you for taking time out and um, I hope our listeners have a lot of hope that they can get themselves off this, however long they've been on it. Yes, well, thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. So Nishi, where can people actually go to find you or is there something that you actually offer? So can people be directed to that Yes, well, I have exciting news. I'll be launching a one-of-a-kind 30-day sleep program that will give people the tools and knowledge to sleep better and up-level their energy by leveraging the body's natural rhythms. So this course is going to be perfect for busy professionals who don't have a lot of time but want to know exactly what to do at different times of the day to set themselves up for restorative sleep and to feel energized and productive. This course is going to be available to the general public. We'll be launching around the end of January, so stay tuned. And people can find out more by signing up for my newsletter at intrabalance.com forward slash newsletter. So that's intrabalance.com forward slash newsletter. Superb. So people out there, so if you have, if you're itching to join that, just send Nishi a mail right away and make sure you're on the list so when the course launches you can grab your hands on it and get sleepy. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed the show. Just a reminder that this podcast is for information purposes only. This is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified health professional. This information is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you are looking for personal help on your health journey, do seek out a medical practitioner. Please do make your own healthcare decisions based upon your research and in partnership with your doctor or otherwise qualified healthcare professional. It is in no way intended as medical advice as a substitute for medical counseling or as treatment or cure for any particular health condition. Be sure to always work directly with a qualified health practitioner before making any changes to your diet or lifestyle that may feel out of your realm of comfort or understanding. If you are looking for an allied functional medicine practitioner, do seek out more information on www.phytothrive.com or www.sleepwhisperer.pro. 
It is important that you have someone who is qualified and understands your health personally in order to provide adequate care especially when it comes to chronic health conditions.